After a full week's worth of testimony and evidence, the justice for an innocent victim all comes down to 12 people. But the story doesn't stop at the end of the trial. The verdict and sentencing made an incredible impact on the community, the victim's family, the judge, and one key witness. This week's episode is Amber Geiger, Part 2. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, a lot has happened since we last recorded. It has. Yeah. How are you? Ugh. I mean, the hits keep coming with the news and the, I mean, this case alone is unfolding. We have other cases in Dallas. Yeah. Recently, just in Fort Worth, this has happened again. So thank you to everyone who's obviously sent the story to all of us because we, I mean, we were obviously aware of it, but we do appreciate the Tatiana Jefferson story. So we are yes, monitoring um, that, and that's a sort of similar situation. Very, yeah. Similar, but different. Yeah. Um, There's body cam footage. The uh, officer in question was uh, resigned before he could be fired, but was charged with murder today. Correct. So uh, for going those, in the right direction as of now. And for those of you who are not in uh, Dallas or America... Uh, I mean, so we do. We have listeners in other countries. Absolutely. So a white Fort Worth police officer shot and killed a black woman in her home while he was responding for a wellness check. So yes. a neighbor called and said, hey, there's some doors open. I'm worried about my neighbor. And the body cam footage online, which is very upsetting. You yeah. sort of see him circling the house. And then when he sees a figure, he doesn't identify himself as police. And he just instead immediately shoots uh, Tatiana Jefferson, who had been inside playing video games with her nephew. Yes. So it's baffling that that is how you're on a wellness check you see a figure i would assume your first thought would be oh she's okay i see her moving around in there but instead there was because there was no reports of like oh i saw three guys kick the door in and they all had weapons and the police chief the fort Worth police chief was on the news this evening which is we're recording on monday the and he said he was asked, when is it appropriate for an officer to open fire at someone through a window that they can't see? And he said, if there had been reports, oh, there's a person inside shooting, please right. help us. But he said, Are you here? Or they yell something yeah. threatening, but mm-hmm. it was a figure he saw through a window, the figure of the woman who lives, lived there. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's a person, he seems like he's uh, like on a hairpin trigger because he just goes, let me see your hands and these shoes. Yeah. You know, versus saying, yeah. police, are you okay? I mean, uh, on the there's always another argument of I'm concerned about my safety as an officer. But again, there was no, the chief of police, right. I'm not an expert, but let me say, I'll quote an expert who sure. said, the chief of police said, this is an inappropriate yeah. use. We were going to fire him. He resigned before we could fire him. And then uh, Monday evening, you know, it's whatever, October 14th, Monday evening, he was charged with murder. So we will, he's only been an officer about 18 months. So we'll see how that how that one pans out. How that one pans out. That's We're going to talk today about how this one has panned out. Has panned out as well. And before we do, we just wanted to address. So we've got a lot of um, comments and questions about why we named the episode 
Amber Geiger as opposed to Botham Jean. And we thought before we named this episode about that, but we decided to name it after the defendant. One, so she won't easily be able to just slip into a life of solitude. And like the comfort of anonymity. Yes. You know, she gets to just go sort of right off into the sunset like Brock Turner and nobody talks about who she is. Right. In, in, in five years or, you know, not less, but in five years or seven years or whenever she gets out. Right, right, Google right. her name and you will see this. Yes. Yeah. And in no way are we trying to diminish Botham's life or the injustice of his death. I think we made it very clear in the first episode how sympathetic we are mm-hmm. to him and his family and just victims in general. Yeah. So we're just trying to highlight what is happening in the justice system by focusing on the trial. I think so. And in all of our other episodes, the Menendez brothers, Terry Pedersen, he had so many names. The Chameleon, the Chameleon killer, killer. And uh, the Cleveland Strangler. You know, we always name it after the killer, even Amanda Knox, who was an alleged killer. Yes. Uh, in the cases where we it was unsolved, like Jean Bonnet or something like that, then it's more of the focus on the victim. But in this case, we want to focus because the focus is on her actions and how her actions have negatively affected it. But yeah, definitely the, this... I think when we especially when we get into the sentencing, we'll see how it sort of shines a light on the justice system as a whole and how this trial is kind of indicative of maybe a few steps we've made forward, but how there's just we still have a far way to go. I would say miles, but it's whatever's longer than miles. Light years. (laughs) Yeah. We still got light years. You know, a little progress, but justice too long delayed is justice denied. But we're we're moving there. We're trying. Absolutely, yeah. In insofar as the comedy podcast is helpful. (laughs) The truth. Yes. You know, that's well, like, I'm like at the end of the day, technically a lawyer, first and foremost, a comedian. So <laughs> I am technically, well, I am a stay at home mom. Yes, definitely. Second, a comedian. I would say technically an investigator. I am a comedian. I am, okay. I am detective mommy funny pants. <laughs> so good. It's a great name. It's a great name. Ah, it's so funny. That's so, much- so stupid. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> but you know, it's an interesting question. Like, who are you? Like, what are we yeah. in life? How do I we- am Detective Mommy Funny Pants. Okay, well. Can't wait for somebody do something with that. Yeah. Make a fun thing. You're, And that would make you like the Sherlock Holmes, and I'm very happy to be the Watson. <laughs> well, I'm Christy, a.k.a. Detective, Detective Mommy, Mommy Funny, funny Pants. Pants. And I'm Heather. And the probably the only moment of levity we'll have in an otherwise probably an, an intense, legally easy kind of an this episode. This is very legal heavy, which I personally enjoy and most of our listeners do as well because we get to have good legal breakdown because of Heather McKinney Esquire. <laughs> so technically I'm an Esquire. You should sign your name with Esquire Did more. You, in Texas, lawyers a while back fought to be called doctor because it's a Juris Doctorate degree. Oh. It's like a Juris Doctorate degree. But only the douchiest of douchebags call themselves doctor. I don't, I'm not a doctor. I have never heard a lawyer refer to themselves as a doctor. There's some of them out there. Wow. But I do like... Uh, you douche you. So, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, let's get into it. On the first day of the defense's case, they filed a subpoena for five more potential witnesses. Additionally, on the first day, defense attorneys wanted a definitive marker placed into evidence that Geiger was 13 to 15 feet away from Botham when she shot him. They felt the location of Botham's shoes at the scene of the crime indicated this. And this is based on photographic evidence that they were trying to enter into in connection with uh, Texas Ranger David Armstrong's testimony. Yes, Judge Kemp refused to allow this fact to be entered into evidence for three reasons. One, because the officers moved Botham's shoes when trying to save his life. 
too, because there were several other pairs of shoes in Botham's living room, making it hard to determine which pair he was wearing. And three, because there was no testimony that Botham was even wearing shoes at all when he was gunned down. As such, there was no way to determine the exact distance. This is a little bit of an unfair argument by the defense because there's a photo and it's these slide, not quite flip flops, but like right. slider, almost like soccer slider. Those sandals. Adidas blue mm-hmm. and white slides. Yeah. And they were sort of near where he was found. But there was another pair near the couch and there were some other shoes because both of them much like me or you. Dude, I mean, do you know how many pairs of shoes are strewn about my house right now mm-hmm. that indicate nothing except the fact that I'm lazy. Here, I told Paris, I was like, listen, I love you, but he takes his shoes off in the middle of the living room. Like, he just walks out of them. And they're just, you just come around a corner and it's like, he's been raptured. He's just gone. <laughs> I do that too. Just, yeah, same. I mean, same. And I was like, I'll put him, you know, I'll put him away. I don't mind. He's like, you're going to get so tired of that eventually. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. You will. But I mean... <laughs> <laughs> of all the things to get tired of, but I don't think that that necessarily indicates where he was or where. No, he the defense's was. argument. When you were explaining it to me, I think I texted you. This makes absolutely zero sense. I think it, they were. It doesn't make sense to me what their argument would be. And, and they, they were reaching. I think because very for much them because so. the question is why? Why do you want to say that this marker, thirteen to fifteen feet away from the door frame, is? Why would you, as the defense, want to mark that as the definitive place he was at when he was shot is because that would indicate he was up off the couch running or walking towards her. And they, in in their theory, they're saying he was walking towards her and in a threatening stepped manner. out of his shoes. Uh, I think that the argument was that he was still wearing the shoes and maybe they f- fell when off. When he was shot down, they fell off. Or when they were performing, the first responders were performing life-saving measures, they fell off. Okay. But it's better for the defense for both of them to be closer to the door because right. it's more reasonable. It's a more threatening position when in reality, I think he was like more like 20 or 30 feet away. He was getting up off the couch in reality. Off the couch. Yes. So that they were just trying to push that and Judge Kemp wasn't having it. I mean, she was just like, no. Well, additionally, Judge Kemp entertained an additional objection from the defense as she did not allow testimony from Texas Ranger Armstrong, stating that Geiger's actions, both in entering the apartment and in her use of deadly force, were reasonable as that was the central issue to be determined by the jury. Ranger Armstrong was not proffered as an expert and was not established as an expert in a separate hearing, as would be required. He was therefore simply testifying as the lead officer in the case. And as such, it was not proper for him to testify as to reasonableness. Yeah, the defense basically wanted to say... Texas Ranger, who appears to a jury as an expert. I mean, he's interviewed, you know, in theory, was she reasonable in her actions? And he wanted to say yes. But the problem is that is a question to be determined solely by the jury. And because you have to do a separate hearing where you say, what are your credentials? How much are you being paid to testify? How much they do these whole separate expert witness uh, hearings? They didn't do one for him. So he was just simply like, you know, he was just there to give his opinion as the guy, as a fact witness and not as an expert witness. And so they were trying to get that in. So some people, uh, some people argued that that indicated that she was reasonable. And it's like, nay, nay, his opinion doesn't matter because right. he is not the jury. And we talked about that in the first episode. Side note, if you have not listened to the first episode, <laughs> Might be a little lost. go back and listen to the first episode because we talk all about the incident and the whole state's side of the case. The defense intended to present details of Geiger's background. The prosecution objected prior to this questioning, arguing that the background had no relevance to whether Geiger acted reasonably on the night of the shooting, and further, that the testimony was simply intended to elicit sympathy, making it more prejudicial than it was probative. 
Judge Kemp partially sustained the objection, but allowed other testimony. Amber Geyer then took the stand in her own defense on the fifth day of the trial. The questioning began with her background. According to her testimony, Geiger grew up in a small house in Arlington, Texas, the youngest of three children. Her parents were divorced when Geiger was five, after which she was raised by her mom with financial help from her dad. Prior to entering the police academy, Geiger graduated from Sam Houston High School. Her attorneys highlighted that she participated in swimming, band, orchestra, and played in the mariachi band, which she joined her junior year of high school. Upon graduating from high school, she went on to play in a mariachi band at birthday parties in quinceañeras for an additional six years. The attorney had Geiger confirm that her high school and neighborhood were both, quote, multiracial. Geiger then paid her way through college, studying criminology, with a job as a server at TGI Fridays and another job in retail. It's a little bit cringy for him as they go through these facts. It's basically a I am not racist testimony. It's basically, (laughs) how could I be racist? I have a a friend that's black. How could I possibly be racist? I played trumpet in a mariachi band. Yes. I'm not racist. So it's it's like she doth protest too much. You Mm -hmm. know, he's like, you grew up in a multiracial high school. So So therefore, uh there's no way that you would have just shot an innocent black man because he was black. Geiger said that her motivation for becoming an officer was to help people. And that was the one career that I thought I could help people in. In her department training, she testified that the idea of calling out verbal commands was, quote, drilled into her and other officers. She also testified that officers are trained to consider if a suspect's hands are not visible, that the suspect may be carrying a weapon. She went on to say that in her training, she also learned that The closer a suspect would get to us, that would be a bad day for us. You never wanted anyone to get closer to you. She gave the background of her career with DPD, including her time as a patrol officer and on the CRT, the crime reduction team, where she met Martin Rivera, the oldest and most experienced officer on that team. The two spent eight hours a day per day together and then began a close relationship Geiger's testimony then turned toward the exact nature of her relationship with Martin Rivera, who she was texting as both of them laid on the floor, bleeding out in front of her. More than just her work partner, over the course of knowing one another, Officer Rivera became her sexual partner. And this is where I think some people maybe got a little uh, queasy, wondering why they're bringing up her sexual relationship. But She's th- saying they're slut-shaming her, this isn't relevant. It is relevant. Well, first of all, it wouldn't be allowed if it wasn't relevant because her defense attorneys would have made an objection. Touche. And Judge Kemp would have ruled on that objection. So, again, we get into the uh, my personal view of relevance is X, but the legal view of relevance is this, and it is relevant because he was who she was texting as we'll get into, but she, it, he was an important player yeah. in the timeline of her yes. night. And then the contents of the messages are going to come out as you're going through the timeline. So it's relevant up front to say what was going on here. And I think that her, frankly, her defense uh, attorneys try to do it to establish credibility. Because if you have someone on the stand that's like, yeah, I did this bad thing. I'm here to admit to it. Then the, they wanted to get it out before the prosecution, the prosecution had a chance to. And yeah. you have an aha yes, moment. He's yeah. like, tell us about what happened with Martin. Yeah. And she's like, we were sex partners. So I think they were trying to get ahead of the. They're going to diminish the shock and the this isn't that big of a deal. She's, she's only by to getting it. to it first. Yeah. yeah, that's what they were trying to do. The two began an affair as Martin was married which included sporadic sexual encounters and exchanging sexually explicit text messages. The sexual part of the relationship lasted approximately a year, but Geiger ended it because she knew it was morally wrong. 
However, she continued the flirtatious texting and continued working alongside Rivera, though not as close. She said that after the sexual relationship ended, she started switching up who they would ride along with. So it wouldn't just be them two all day, every day. But they did continue. And that's... Like I said, if you're if you you and Lord have an understanding or you and whoever you answer to have an understanding. But I wonder if that was really over. Well, how many people have you been sexually intimate with? <laughs> Let me tons, just Tons, first of all. First tons. Of all, hundred. I was never You as in the as in the general you. You break it off, yet you continue to sext with each other, and that's where it ends. When you're seeing them day in and day out. I don't think that's happened to a lot of people. That may not be a believable. I think assertion. if you if you lived in separate states, yes, I could see that. But if you're horned up and you're texting each other stuff all the time, and then you're seeing each other, yeah, that's a real slippery slope to Late get back into. And, yeah. yeah, I and it confuses me as if you know it's morally wrong, and that's why you stop sleeping with them. What you're doing is still morally wrong by your own account of something being morally wrong. And also, I I think the defense presented the the sex relationship was over for uh, we'll get into it here in the next part. But I think there was a reason why they were asserting that it was over, not just for her to save face from a moral perspective, but from a defense perspective. I think, believe it or not. Lawyers are calculating and they say things. Shut up. (laughs) Never. For reasons. (laughs) Well, Geiger moved to the Southside Flats with her dog in mid-July of 2018. The week of the shooting, Geiger had taken her dog, Ranger, to her mom's house because she received notice of some apartment inspections. This is one of those things that I think, in the domino effect of all of this, Mm -hmm. had there not been apartment inspections that week and her dog had been there, you probably the absence of no of her dog not running to mm-hmm. the door may have triggered her more than not seeing the decorative planner not the noticing rug. the the doormat or something like that if you walk in you're like where's my dog that's here every time i come home mm-hmm. or you hear that caller or something it's just one of those it's it's like what if yeah what if that was the other argument was you knew they were doing apartment inspections. Why would you immediately assume you had an intruder? Why wouldn't you be like, oh, they're probably looking at my apartment. Oh, that's a good point, too. Yeah. The day of the shooting, Geiger had gone to work at 7.20 a.m. and remembered locking her apartment door. After assisting with the SWAT bust and bringing two suspects to headquarters to be interviewed, Geiger and another officer went to dinner at nearby Zalot Pizza. Meanwhile, Rivera left work and headed to a scouts event with his kids. Shout out to the lot pizza. Was it good? It, oh my god, have you never been? Do they have gluten free pizza? Probably. Maybe I'll check. It's it. real hipster. Probably. It's, it's but it's down there in the Cedars area. Oh my gosh, there's there's several. Locations. Yeah, there's several. They have the lot, and then they also have Delot, which are side by side. It's the same place. Delot is pho. Oh, nice, dude. So good. But then they have a pho pizza. 
Y'all, if you're if you live in Dallas, get to the lot right now. They have a fuck. Do they just dump soup on the? No, pizza? it's it's just the flavors and stuff. Interesting. Yeah, they also have an elote's pizza, which is I would eat that. out of this world. I love elote. For those of you from not from the U.S., elote is <laughs> corn in a cup with mayonnaise and cream and butter and sugar. Not sugar and cheese. No, no sugar and Paper. hot sauce and pepper. Um, Tommy the, had some at the state fair yesterday. Oh yeah, that is it's it is fair. It's very time. state fair stuff. Uh, I think this is all important too. They ask her, you know, where were you? Because the news media immediately in the aftermath of the shooting made it sound like she was running circles all day and was exhausted. Right, but like she dropped some suspects off. It's like six o'clock. They go to pizza. They're kind of sitting around. She's sitting around texting. It wasn't not to diminish her work day. It's a long work day. It's it wasn't backbreaking work of. Being on your feet nonstop on yes, the go. I was running after suspects yeah, all day. Yeah, long. yeah, you know, there was, chasing down criminals. Yeah, she had a break. She had some time to sit and talk with this guy and to text and whatnot. And so I think again, this is they were they, they were pro- setting the scene. They were setting the scene. Yeah. Of what what her day actually looked like versus what the media kind of made it right. Sound right. Like. Geiger and the other officer waited at Zalot to transport the suspects to the nearby jail once their interviews were finished. Around six p.m., Rivera texted Geiger asking what time he could come over. She responded in a sexual manner, and although it seemed like he was invited over, Geiger testified that the two did not intend to meet up. Rivera texted again later, checking in on the suspects. A little business, a little pleasure. It's like a mullet. But it's like a mullet. (laughs) But I think, again, this is where the argument that, oh, we hadn't had sex in a year, we don't have sex, we don't hook up. But They were trying to say... Explicitly, And while this could be flirty banter... Mm -hmm. I totally understand what they're trying to get at that. No, you guys were making plans to hook up. This and you wasn't obviously over. weren't super exhausted because you were ready to invite right. somebody over. Yeah. Geiger then left the jail after dropping off the suspects. At that time, around 8.40 p.m., Martin Rivera texted Geiger a, quote, sexually suggestive photograph. She responded that she was sweepy or sleepy, feeling tired by the end of the day. Geiger then sent Rivera a sexually suggestive photo with a caption that read, Want to touch? And so, again, the prosecution is asking, was the touching imminent? Right. Rivera eventually called Geiger as she was leaving the police substation and driving home. The conversation lasted until she parked her truck on what she thought was the third floor. She stayed on the phone for a few more minutes after she backed her truck in. And this is, again, the substation is maybe 15 minutes south of where she lives, maybe 12 minutes, something like mm-hmm. that. Because when this all first came out, I thought the police station's two minutes from her house, but she was actually at her substation, okay. which was down the yeah. down the highway, a couple exits. I think they're also painting the picture of she's on the phone, she's distracted. Yep. Had she not been sexting involved and- in this, uh, yeah, sexting and whatnot, she would have been more present and parked on her floor and or been aware that she was on the wrong floor and apparently they had phone calls like this a lot when she was driving and he was away the defense then asked geiger to stand and hold her equipment the same way she had carried it in from her car to the apartment door that night when asked to stand geiger began to cry judge kemp called for a 10-minute break and had the jury leave the room after the break once she had composed herself geiger demonstrated how she had carried her things that night holding all items on her left arm her backpack, her service vest, and her lunch bag. According to Geiger, as she put her key in the door, she saw that it was cracked open. She then heard moving around inside. Geiger testified. I was scared to death. 
She continued that. I compare it to being in a car wreck. Right before you hit the car, you literally just, everything just freezes up inside your body. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's just fear, fear, fear inside of you. As she opened the door, she claimed she saw a silhouette figure standing in the back middle of the apartment by the window. She then used her left arm to fully open the door and used her right arm to draw her weapon. She testified that she gave the command of, let me see your hands, twice with her gun out. She said that she then saw Botham moving around, but could not see his hands. According to Geiger, Botham moved towards his door at a fast-paced walk, saying, hey, 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 in what she described as an aggressive voice. Okay. I feel like this contradicts completely what the evidence shows, but also she contradicts herself. If she says... She heard shuffling and walking around inside. But then when she opens the door, he's standing in front of her window at the back of the apartment. It seems like there's a lot of disconnect there. To hear shuffling or walking around, that would probably be pretty close to the door, mm-hmm. not 15 feet away from you. And not what it actually was, which was probably closer to 25 feet away. And actually what it was, was he was sitting down on the couch, yes. which is what the evidence shows. So therefore, she would have heard no shuffling or walking around because he's sitting down watching something on his laptop eating ice cream. My only estimation, because she said, oh, this was like within four seconds, was that the door, so she sees the door cracked. And this is, I think, where someone asked, How could you just quickly say that it's manslaughter or that it's murder and not manslaughter? Because what we're about to tell you in the evidence. So she has these opportunities, right? Initially, she sticks the key in and she sees that it turns red and that the door is cracked already. And by turning red, you're saying that means her key card or her, her key should not be, thing. her fob should not be working on that door. But the, so she sees that the door is open, it's cracked. What she should have done is walk away. Exactly. So then what she does next is she listens and hears the shuffling. So she proceeds to open the door where she should not have done that. What you do is walk away. And then she sees somebody. And instead of once again, walking away, because she's because this is where it got really. They had her standing up and Jason Hermes, the prosecutor, has her going. He's like, this is the threshold. Where were you when the shooting started? And she's like, oh, I stepped like one step in the threshold. So it's at no point was it like, oh, man, I was in my kitchen and my back was turned and I turned around and there was a guy there and I was startled. It was like you purposefully walked yourself into a situation and then saw a person and then shot them in the chest with the intent to kill them. You had every opportunity to shut that door. You were not the one that was trapped. Correct. You were already outside. You're correct. You you have an exit. You're in the exit. Correct. You've already exited. Correct. You're now entering into a more dangerous situation. Yes. And for what? And and then brandishing your weapon. She said she pulled it really before she she's like, well, I was partway in the door. I had, to, you know, whatever. But these this is where this is what goes to reasonable. It's like this is very unreasonable behavior. Yeah. It's just going in guns blazing, literally. Yes. yes. Into a situation in which that is 100 percent not necessary. Yes. If you had a sleeping baby in there, maybe yes. I can or an uh, ailing parent or something like someone if you're, is screaming, help me. Help yes. Me. If you're trying to protect someone or. Yes. But there was so nothing in there. Exigent circumstances where there's a circumstance that allows you to breach a, a situation where normally you'd only be able to go with a warrant. Right. So if someone's like, help me, God. Right. Oh, it's on fire. Oh, he's got a gun. Whatever. That's a case that you can then enter into. But 
There was no nothing in there worth what happened. There were about three or four moments that she was breaching the door that she should not. She just turned around, man. Geiger was standing in the doorway, propping open the door. From the door to the back of the apartment is approximately 30 feet. That's when she fired two shots because she said, I was scared he was going to kill me. She also testified she could not see who it was when she shot. Okay, again, if she couldn't see who it was, why do you assume he's trying to kill you? He's not close enough to you for you to even to see any kind of a weapon, Mm -hmm. to see that he's threatening in any way. If you can't make out who it is, then how can you make out even what his facial expression is to know if he's threatening you in any way? Mm Mm-hmm. She said, well, my training says if I can't see his hands, just shoot him, which is not what the training says, by the way. But she had this, like we said in the last episode, she's not not a person that shouldn't be brandishing a gun as a job. Because, like she said, she what did I say? Fear, fear, fear. She flipped out. She flipped out. She whipped out her gun and started shooting. This is not the type of person that should have been a police officer. I was scared he was going to kill me. Uh, Then fucking walk around and shut your door and run down the hall and get help and call for backup. You're a cop. Yeah, You've got a walkie-talkie on you. Jason Hermes said, in two minutes, the cavalry would have come. You you walkie-talkie and say... Which they did once yes. she did. But if you're scared he's going to kill you, then turn around and flee. This is, this is what we call unreasonable behavior, Golly. which negates your affirmative defense. Once she moved into the apartment, she realized that she was not, in fact, at home. First, she noticed the ottoman in the middle of the floor. There was also a TV light on that she had previously failed to notice. I realized I had no idea who he was. Then the reality set in of what she had done. Geiger testified. I knew I had shot him, but I wasn't sure where he was hit on his body. It's interesting that she says, I realized I had no idea who he was. Did you think you would have known the person that you shot, if even if it was a burglar? Yeah. Uh, I, this testimony, she's very shaky and emotional. and Understandably I mean, so. Yeah. So I think in some of her answers. But she's also been prepped the fuck out of this by her attorney. Sure. So, I mean, she's got to have some logical explanations that they've they've given to her to also, say. impeachment wise, uh, she did know where she shot him because Jason Hermes asked her, did you shoot him in the the center mass where you were trained to? And she says, yes. Yeah. So I'm like, he, she, I, don't, I didn't even know what happened. It all happened so fast. It's like, you knew what you did. Absolutely. So I don't know. It's a, it's a lot of ass covering, I think, that she's- 100%. Yeah. Geiger then testified that she gave Botham a sternum rub to try and revive him as he was semi-conscious at this time. She testified that she had seen first responders do the same in an attempt to revive unconscious people and also stated, From the state he was in, I knew it wasn't good. She testified she had her phone in her right hand talking to 911 and was doing chest compressions with her left hand. She then testified that when the 911 operator asked her what apartment she was in, she got up and went outside to look. I stepped outside and just looked up and saw I was in apartment 1478. The defense asked Geiger what went through her mind as she was on the phone with 911, to which Geiger replied, I just wanted someone there with me. The defense attorney asked what she thought as she stood beside Botham. Geiger replied, That I shot an innocent man. He didn't deserve, I didn't, uh, it was in my apartment. She also testified that once officers arrived, they told Geiger to get out of the apartment. I just wanted someone there with me. You know who I bet wanted someone there with them? Both of them. (laughs) Who gave a shit about him and was paying attention and not texting while they were on the phone with that one. However, timestamps of text messages show that while Geiger was on the phone with 911, 
at three minutes and 25 seconds into the call, she was sending texts to her partner, Martin Rivera. One text said she needed him, and the other message said that she had messed up. When questioned as to why she sent those messages, she said, I was by myself with someone I had just shot. I didn't have the help of another partner to help me with CPR on him. I was alone with him, and that's the scariest thing you could ever imagine. I just wanted help. I wanted someone there. He was the first one, my, my partner. I trusted that I, that I could know he could be there for me. I don't think it's the scariest thing I can. I think the scariest thing I can imagine is being sitting on my couch, eating some ice cream and the door gets busted down and I'm shot in the chest. Yes. And then the person on it. That's literally the scariest thing that keeps me up at night thinking about shit like that. Absolutely. And the person that maybe could maybe maybe help you maybe with first aid is got their hands on their phone. Yeah. Yeah. The one. Okay, so you do get shot. The one person you want to show up is a cop or an ambulance, uh, EMT or something. And that's the person that's there and they're not doing shit. They're texting. And uh, I'm going to call bullshit on her sternum rub because if and the evidence shows she's texting, you cannot be texting also on the phone with 911 and, and giving a sternum rub. And you, she said you she got gave, two hands. She also said she gave chest compressions, which I don't think she did because she had no blood on her. No, she had zero blood on her gloves. She wasn't even wearing her gloves. Her gloves didn't even come out of her bag. Yes. She had no blood on her uniform. She did not get close enough to him. And as we said in the last episode, he was shot in the chest. His He, he, is, was, tra- he was shot through the heart. He is gushing blood. Blood yes. is going to be... Sorry to be graphic, spraying everywhere, spurting out. Yeah. If you even leaned over him or crouched down next to him, you're going to get blood on you on the floor. It was all over. Yeah. Yeah. There's I think she deliberately stayed away from him. Yes. When the defense attorney pulled out Geiger's service weapon, Geiger shook her head vigorously and began to cry. Why did you pull out your service weapon? He asked. I was scared. She testified through tears. I was scared this person inside my apartment was going to kill me. I'm so sorry. She then began to say, I have to live with that every single day. But the prosecution objected. Yeah, it was non-responsive. I mean, his question was, why did you pull out your service weapon? The answer was, I was afraid someone was going to kill me. Full stop. And the rest of it's all irrelevant. Yes. Non-responsive. Elicit sympathy. And I mean, I'm sure she's. Also, if you she's ha- clearly very upset. She's rambling. She's obviously beside herself with emotion. But still, why did you pull out your service weapon? I thought he was going to kill me. You were at the exit to your apartment. She wasn't even in the apartment when she pulled the service Just weapon. Just run. Leave. I mean, that's the easy, not only the, to me the most logical, it's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Unless you're a person who's this guns blazing kind of you know, shoot first, ask questions later. Geiger's attorney then asked how she felt once she knew she shot someone. Geiger was crying so hard she was told by Judge Kemp to take a moment to collect herself. Her attorney then asked how she felt about herself, given what she had done to both of them. She replied, I feel like a terrible person. I feel like a piece of crap. I hate it. I hate that I have to live with this every single day of my life. And I ask God for forgiveness. And I hate myself every single day. I feel like I don't deserve the chance to be with my family and friends. I wish he was the one with the gun that killed me. I never wanted to take an innocent person's life. And I'm so sorry. This is not about hate. This is about being scared that night. Oh, man. Again. uh... It's about being scared that if that is that, that sounds to me from her own testimony 
that is when you boil it down what she's saying. I was scared, so I shot. I was fearful for my life. You didn't need to do that. You weren't being held down by this person. He, no one was coming at you with a, a gun pointed at you. Uh, I will also say, she. I believe she says, this is not about hate. She makes a point to say, I didn't see what he looked like when I shot mm, him. Yeah. However, I call bullshit because the hallway is very well lit. And if you crack the, I mean, in the seconds that she cracked the door and pulls the gun, I think she, like I said, there's two kinds of biases, right? I don't know if I said this, but in my personal life, I've been chatting with people about it. You have implicit and explicit bias, right? Explicit bias is, I don't know, you send racist text messages to your coworkers uh, or your friends, or you say racist jokes, or you laugh when people tell you racist jokes. That's explicitly bias, right? Implicitly bias is you clutch your purse close to you when you see a black guy right. across the street, right? And you're like, well, I'm not racist. I have, I have. Everyone, you know, uh, that's great. We all wish we weren't racist, right? But I think that you need to, as a person, and I do, and I know you, Christy, do and i hope you as a listener will consider this and confront this within yourself this implicit bias that you have where you've been fed if i may a bunch of bullshit by the news for the last century and and some change that a black man is a criminal that this was purposefully fed to you this was perpetuated by richard nixon and his was perpetuated by ronald reagan they they trumped up to use a pretty appropriate term a fake <laughs> yeah. war on drugs in the case of ronald reagan planted or allowed an influx of crack cocaine to be pushed into black communities then they raised the sentencing on crack cocaine when they didn't on coke i mean i'm reading the the new jim crow by michelle alexander and it's just which it's also i mean it's covered very well in 13 yeah i was just about to say this um, is all documented beautifully in 13 but if you wonder why you as yourself kind of have this if you do have a gut reaction it's very systemic it's systemic and so what this is is a person who will reveal in sentencing some unsavory feelings that she may have had and you know there's the the famous photo when it first the shooting first happened of her mom wearing an all lives matter t-shirt and she has uh, will learn explicit but in this case i think this is implicit bias i think this is a person who Oh my gosh, that's a black person. He mm. must be a criminal. I'm going to shoot him. And I don't think she, it's this there's question. a black person in my home. He's and I immediately I fear for my life. I think that's what it is. And I, and I think that we should. It's a it's all racism, right? But in this case, uh, like we said, people say, "Oh, murder." I don't think what she did was murder. And it's like, well, you may think of murder as like the Menendez brothers or Ted Bundy or something like that. In that case, this is still. Uh, a murder what she did and then as well as racism you think oh somebody's in the kkk they fly a confederate flag in front of their house or whatever in this case implicit bias is still racism it's still insidious and in fact it's it's worse because it's and it's, it's somebody that says arguably i i don't want to say more common than well, explicit but in our in my day-to-day life it's more, i am exposed to implicit racism yes and bias way more than somebody just coming out and saying the n-word or something Correct. like that yes it's the little things you see at 7-eleven where somebody pulls their kid a little closer to him when yes. a person of color walks in yes or you know crosses the street when you're gonna have to pass by someone yes. that you think looks unsavory yes it's in the multitude of things you see on twitter videos of white people acting shitty in mcdonald's or the fish shitty grill or whatever it was like there's just and those people are initially implicitly biased and when you poke them enough they're explicitly biased mm-hmm. you know what I mean? they're flat out racist so it's this insidious thing that i think she, like i said she's swimming around in this world of like well i have to determine what a threat is and if you've 
your whole life and everyone else's whole lives for centuries we've been fed this idea that a threat is a black male because that's what we've been fed then that's what she, i think she saw him and i think that's what she did i agree that's and, all i got to say about that and i i agree in addition to just the lights being in the in the hallway. hallway if he's got his laptop open and the apartment lights are off that illuminates your face at least so the whole thing the only thing you can probably see is what this person looks like and i think or at the very least what the color of his skin and is. i was gonna say and, it, and that's the question you know people go you have to leave race out of this wrong eh, wrong answer because yes it's not a hate crime i don't think she said i'm no. gonna go kill a black person no. but i think that her the, it is still a racist crime because you have that implicit bias in you and it's uh, I, I was so scared for my life because he was a big black man is really the end of that sentence that she's not saying right and then also it's really it's she probably is really upset on account of she's on trial right she's crying but it's this very dangerous visual of a little tiny white lady crying that she was scared of her life because a big mean black man was crying right. you know what i mean and that's another image that's been perpetuated by the media and also entertainment industry you know up until maybe like the 60s or the 70s. only people that say you gotta leave race out of this is white people are <laughs> are oh, I mean I we don't say that and no. we're white people but are people usually white yes that are implicitly biased yes yes and I think that's another ex- perfect example of that systemic racism they don't think they're being racist no. in fact they think it's the opposite yes they think hashtag all lives matter is the opposite of being racist when it's not no <laughs> and also no. here's the thing we don't I I'm not a, I'm not a any like a sociologist i'm not an expert on any of this i'm just a person who's fascinated and i'm trying to work on myself i'm not perfect i'm trying to be a better person trying to read books watch as, documentaries. as are most of us so you know what let's you, let's all just try let's all accept that we may have some biases and just try to get better and this is a situation where it has run amok yeah and there's i mean you can't turn on the news i mean this happened while this is all going on it happens once again in fort worth yes uh 45 miles from from where this happened a year ago you know like so i mean it's and in the interim many more people have been tons more it's an epidemic yes well when asked about the bandages and first aid materials in her backpack geiger replied that she knew they were put in her bag a long time ago but she did not think about using them during this incident which is well that's a bummer yeah on cross prosecutors pointed to geiger's lack of attention to both of them as she was texting while on the phone with 911 rather than performing full life-saving measures the prosecutor asked if geiger could imagine how both of them must have felt having just been shot in his own home can you imagine mr john's perspective the prosecutor asked can't you imagine that might be a little bit scarier than you being alone in the moment geiger responded that yes she could but it was how she felt at the time. Yeah, it was. The, well, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, the very end of her testimony is her saying, I just felt so alone in the world and I was so scared. And that's the worst. Oh, go cry me a fucking river. And she said, it's the worst thing that you can imagine. And Jason Hermes was visibly irritated and stuff was like, can't you think that maybe there's something worse that you can imagine? She's like, yeah, I guess. And you know, her her attorneys were just like, oh, God damn. Like, Shit, she shouldn't have said. Hermes was great at keeping his emotions 
like just below the surface. Yeah. He wasn't un- ever unprofessional, but you could tell he was very affected by this case. And, and one- I don't think it was an act. No, 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 no. I no. think he 100%. This is one of those cases. You get close to the family. And, and you will think about this till the day he dies. And you want to win it for yeah. them. Yes. Yeah. It becomes personal. He's like holding up the picture. I mean, in the photo of both of them is in the courtroom. I mean, you look at that and think, this is for you, man. I'm doing mm-hmm. this for you. Yeah. Jason Hermes then asked, When you aimed and pulled the trigger at Mr. Jean, aiming at center mass as you were trained, you intended to kill him? Geiger replied, Yes, sir. So that's important. That's very important. And so everybody just put a little pin in that and keep it in your your brain because that's going to come back uh, big time. The prosecutor brought up the fact that Geiger had undergone de-escalation training with the department in April of 2018. When he went on to question her about the training she received, Geiger replied, I don't remember. It's been a while since I took the class. Uh, Not ideal. Not ideal for an officer (laughs) who receives training on how not to kill more people in the street, not to remember the content. I'm going to say that's something that um, you revisit. You, You refresh yourself on, you know, pretty regularly as a police officer. That's just not something you forget. Yeah. Man, I mean, I took level one improv uh, 12 years ago, and I still remember shit I learned in that. And that's not important at all. (laughs) I remember aviation law class, and that comes up 0% of my life. Yeah. Yeah. There's tons of stuff I remember that I don't even need to. This is something that should be drilled into your brain. That you would ideally use every day. Yes. Yes. I would think that de-escalation training you're hopefully using those skills in every situation you encounter as Ideally. a police officer. Yes. So it's not something you have to forget because it should be ingrained in how you do your job. And Hermes kind of asked that. He said, well, didn't you take the training and kind of like, you know, use it every day? And she's like, I don't know. It's been a long time. The training the prosecution referred to included instructions for officers who hear a threatening sound inside a building or dwelling to wait outside and call for backup. According to the training, to maximize her safety, Geiger should have waited outside, called for backup, taken a position of cover and concealment, and waited for additional help to arrive. That's the phrase they kept using was cover and concealment. Shouldn't you have taken cover and concealment? The prosecutor then asked Geiger to confirm that there were two instances as she was opening the door that she could have pulled back, taken a position of cover, and called for backup instead of choosing to shoot. Geiger confirmed that yes... This was the case. That's when he got into, you know, step one, you see the door cracked, you hear shuffling. That's your first. Actually, really, step one, seeing the door. Well, I guess, yeah, seeing the door crack, hearing shuffling kind of happened simultaneously. She said that was like at the same time. And then opening the door, seeing a figure, but not being in the room. like Bolt. Yes, she had not breached the doorway before she pulled her weapon and shot. So it was like she was stepping in the doorway all. It's like a one. They had her acted out pretty much, Mm -hmm. which was impactful, I think, for the jury. Next, prosecutors called into question Geiger's morality for having a sexual relationship with her partner. They argued that text messages exchanged planning a possible meetup for sex that night contradicted Geiger's testimony that she was exhausted after a long shift, and her tiredness is what led to her entering the wrong apartment. I also think they asked her, what do you, what else were you going to do after work? And she said, oh, I was going to go work out. 
those are sex and working out are two things I do not want to do when I've had a long day. Correct. I mean, and she said, oh, I was going to get my gym bag and change and drive to 10 minutes to 24 hour fitness. And Jason Herman said, oh, were you going to you were so exhausted. You think you would have crashed on the street and hit people? And she's like, no. And he's like, so you probably weren't that exhausted. Man. He's a badass. Yes, he did. It. He did an excellent job. <laughs> Big As a fan person of Hermes. Watched hours of all of his work. He's fantastic. Prosecutor Hermes also attempted to impeach her previous testimony that she did not like living in the Southside Flats. As she had previously testified, there was a lot of crime. The prosecutor showed her a text she sent that said she liked living there, except for some hippies smoking weed. Geiger testified that she did send those messages. Again, this is all a question as to reasonableness because she testified in, on direct examination with her lawyers. Oh, my gosh. There was so much crime. There were homeless people sleeping on the patios. They were sleeping in the pool. They would jump the fence. The fences like and they they're were, saying. So she's thinking like, oh, this could be one of these uh, ne'er do wells that have yes. stumbled into my apartment. Therefore, my life is in danger. Correct. They were trying to paint this as this just overrun like like crime infested, but they had a text from her from a friend who said, Hey man, how's Southside? And she's like, it's pretty nice. Yeah. And so yeah. that's, it's again, it's trying to twist this evidence. We also left out uh, a lot of testimony from the neighbors that were brought by the defense because they were real bad on the stand and they were not helpful. And again, it was three people that were trying to sort of testify Oh man, it was so confusing. It was just so confusing, and every the layout of the, the layout of the, the complex, yeah. the complex was so. And each of them had gone to the wrong floor, and this that's how they found them. Was Texas Ranger Armstrong had interviewed like 350 people that lived there, and these were three people that had ever that had gotten confused. Which of the 15 percent of people that had said they'd ever gone to the wrong floor, these three agreed to testify, and each of them had said, "Oh yeah, you know, I went to the wrong floor." One guy actually did open the door to someone else's apartment, and I think it was his dog ran in or their dog ran out or something. He figured out that he was in the wrong place, and after each one, Jason Hermes would stand up on cross and say, uh, "Did you shoot the person in the apartment?" <laughs> And they would say, no. And he's like, did they shoot you? And he would go, no. And he's like, no further questions. And it was very impactful because it's just like, yeah, it's reasonable to wander into the wrong thing. It's not reasonable to pull your gun yeah. out and shoot yeah. them. Uh, so that was another Great chunk point. Of, of the evidence. Great they, point, they were trying to They were trying to make it seem like it was an, a labyrinthine maze that no one could ever escape from, a corn maze in the dark. And perhaps it is. But again, that doesn't mean you shoot the person that you stumble upon. Yes. It was a very impactful question. What would she have done if she d- if she was not off duty? What do you mean? If she had just come home from working out, didn't have her gun on her, yeah, what would she have done? Oh she my would God, have, I'm so sorry. I'm so she sorry. would have shut the door if she thought she same circumstances. Yes. She th- the only thing I'm taking out is she doesn't have her gun. She would have closed the door and went for help, and and then ran out and said, "Oh shit, I'm on the fourth floor." Yeah. yeah. So the only thing she this is a person that shouldn't have had a no. gun. No. In Texas, a person commits murder. If she intentionally and knowingly causes the death of an individual. On the other hand, a person commits manslaughter if she recklessly causes the death of an individual. The main difference between murder and manslaughter is the intent of the defendant. If the defendant intended to cause death or serious bodily harm by her actions, she has committed murder. So it's one of those things where... A circle, what is it, a square is not a rectangle, rectangle is a square or whatever. You know, like yeah. you can act recklessly and when she did, but also your action, which is the pulling of the gun, you did it with the intent to kill him. By which she admits under she, oath that she did out of her own mouth. So when someone asked me, 
how do you say that it's murder, not manslaughter? First of all, I went because to law she had, she admitted that it, <laughs> it was. All, I, I watched her testimony, and she and Jason Hermes, being a good prosecutor, laid it out. Manslaughter requires reckless conduct, but does not require a prosecutor to prove the defendant's intent. Recklessness under Texas law is when a defendant is aware of, but consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk to another person. And the risk is this gross deviation from a standard of care. So a normal standard of care. Right. So reckless, you know, manslaughter is like you're, you know, you're uh, you're you're drunk and you get into a car accident that kills somebody. That's intoxication manslaughter in Texas is a special version of manslaughter. Okay, so you just get into a wreck and you kill somebody. Oh, you got uh, fireworks and you're uh, holding them out to point them at people. Okay. You know, it's reckless disregard. You're not like, oh, I'm going to kill you. You're like, woohoo, I'm yeah. going to burn your bottom with this firework. And then you you blow them up because it's a firework and you didn't realize it was more powerful than it was. Right. So that's kind of the issue here is that you're not pointing at someone saying, I'm going to kill you with this firework. You're going, Woo-hoo, I'm getting wild. And I'm going to point right at you. And so you did point it at him, but you didn't intend to kill him. Right. In this case, or in any kind of murder, it's when you do a thing with the intent to kill him. It doesn't have to be this like premeditated serial killer or like, like I said, you think of the Menendez brothers. You think of it. It the, doesn't have to be a big flowery epic production. Correct. It is in this moment and it's seconds. You know, some people are like, oh, you did. The, the thing about murders doesn't have to be premeditated. What it has to be is you have to have two things. This is what they teach you in law school is that because we're lawyers, we use fucking Latin. Just use the thing. Actus reus and mens rea and the act and the mind. Right. And the act is I shot you. And the mind that you have wasn't like, well, I don't know. I shot wildly and I didn't know. I, she said, man, I opened my door and I just shot in the dark and I didn't even think there was a person in there. That could be manslaughter. But she said, I saw a person and I shot them in the chest and I intended to kill them. That's murder. On the stand, Jason Hermes asked and Geiger confirmed the following statements. You are Amber Geiger. Yes. You shot and killed both of John. Yes. You testified it was your intent to do that. Yes. So what he just did for the jury and later on when they interviewed the jurors, he just gave he them laid it out. He gave them the elements of murder. She answered affirmatively to all the elements of murder. If it walks like a duck yes. and it sounds like a duck. A friend of ours works in a law firm. He said, all the people I work with were saying the, these defenses and we'll get into all of them. But step one is you, you have to prove that it was murder. And that's what he did because he's good at his job. The saying his first day. Man, if it had been. What a, what a great job. What a, what a great job you've done. I used to tell people that in Chicago when I do like a 75 minute tour at the end. I'd say, thank you guys for being gentle. Today's actually my first day. <laughs> Get so many more tips. That's a good bit. <laughs> While her actions were reckless, she also had the intent that the state needed to prove to convict Geiger of murder. She testified outright that she shot with the intent to kill. Next, the prosecutor showed Geiger a package of trauma gauze that came out of her backpack. He asked whether she used the gauze that night, as it was still in its packaging. She replied she did not. This showed that, although Geiger had items on her person to render first aid and slow down Botham's incredible amount of bleeding, she failed to use them, as they remained in pristine packaging in her backpack. Geiger's attorney's entire defense was built on a Texas statute that negates the mental state required to convict someone of murder. This is called an affirmative defense. An affirmative defense is where a defendant admits that she committed the act described in the statute, but disputes she had the required mental state. And the required mental state could be, I didn't mean to kill him, I was confused, or I made a mistake. 
Never once does she say she made a mistake in killing him, only that she made a mistake in entering the wrong apartment. That is correct. The affirmative defense statute Geiger's team relied upon is called, for short, mistake of fact. The intent required to be convicted of murder is negated when the defendant, through mistake, formed a reasonable belief about a matter of fact, and that mistaken belief negated her culpability. In this case, the defense argued that Geiger mistakenly thought it was her apartment, meaning she believed she was defending her own home, and thus she could not have had the intent required to convict her of murder. Correct. So that was her their whole crux. And that was our friend that worked in the law firm. He said, literally, everyone I work with keeps going, mistake of fact. It was mistake of fact. It was mistake of fact. Is this our friend? That we talked to in the DCH. Uh, I don't want to call him out because or her. I must know who you're talking about. Yeah. Then. But yeah, we were talking about it in the uh, in the patio of DCH. But that's all well and good. But there are you can't. Uh, th- there's a reason why we have juries. Yes. Prosecutors sought to disprove one particular word in that statute reasonable. Geiger's mistaken belief had to be reasonable. Whether or not a mistake is reasonable is a question for the jury. So that's why all this evidence was presented of this was a crazy labyrinthine maze that no one could ever get to versus there was a giant ass planner you should have seen. There was a red carpet you should have seen. Your key, when you put it in, it turned red. You should have noticed the way that the lights look are different. You, you had different furniture in there the when you walked in. When you park, it's open air and you can see buildings versus it being closed in on the floor you normally park on. So these all, so that's, I think you have to like unpack this case because, mm-hmm. you know, it's this gut reaction of like, I don't think that's murder. Well, your opinion doesn't matter, first of all. It just doesn't. So in Texas, we like we said, you have to to say you did the act and you intended your act to kill somebody yes i did that but i agree that i did the act but i didn't intend to kill them under these circumstances outright i have this defense and my defense is i was confused i thought i was in the wrong apartment sure that's mistake of fact i it, fired the gun in there as a warning shot because i was scared exactly well and, and even then if it's like well i just fired it as a warning shot because i didn't know if anybody was in there or not and i wanted to clear the room that's recklessness like i just i shut my eyes and i shot because i just wasn't sure but that could wouldn't that be more of a manslaughter charge yes, as opposed would, to I saw the person and intentionally shot them with the intent to kill them. To kill them because I mistakenly thought it was my apartment. But the question is, it's not just that you made a mistake, right? Because you can't say, well, I opened my door and I thought I was led into another dimension. And I for sure thought that this was a time traveler and I had to kill him. That's unreasonable. That's no, just as unreasonable, maybe a little, little bit less unreasonable to open the door of a department that doesn't look like yours. And a carpet that doesn't look like yours, right. on a floor that doesn't look like yours, on a, a parking garage floor that doesn't look like yours, and shoot the person inside. Yeah. So that's the the whole thing is you can make a mistake, but in order to get off, in order to avoid the murder charge, it has to be a reasonable mistake. And you know who decides that? Judges and not judges and juries, just juries. just the jury. After six days of witness testimony, closing arguments were presented by both sides. It was during these that Judge Kemp also decided to allow Geiger's attorneys to introduce the Castle Doctrine as part of their defense, which basically says you are justified to use deadly force to protect your home from intruders. It's a Texas-specific statute, which, if you're interested in the Castle Doctrine or Stand Your Ground, which what came up in Trayvon Martin's case in Florida, watch the movie 13. They go into ALEC, which is this shadow organization that drafts legislation that supported, I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but no, it's, it's, it's well documented. Yes, very. It's, it's, it's just, also it's, 
mind-blowing. It's shit that they don't report on the evening yeah. news, right? You dig a little deeper and you find out yeah. the people that are pulling the strings are the people whose pocketbooks are affected. And if the gun companies, the NRA, et cetera, push forward these very pro-gun measures, sell them more guns, right? And Castle Doctrine was a thousand percent drafted by Alec. I mean, it's in yeah. There's proof. <laughs> Duh, man, I need to rewatch that documentary because it's just... Ugh. And Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy, which is a phenomenal book and yeah. everyone should read it, is interviewed in that as well as Michelle Alexander. It's, it's maybe the best documentary I've ever seen. It's, it's so good. So well done. The prosecution argued that this doctrine in no way applied to this case as Geiger was not in her home, despite the defense's argument that she thought she was. The prosecution went on to say that if the Castle Doctrine should apply to anyone in this case, it should be both of them. I concur. We'll get into it on the appeal part, but this was a, a key choice by Judge Kemp. And again, it's yeah. something that third parties or lay people would go, that's bullshit. Don't put that in there. I think I just disagree with that. There's, There's a reason for it. Again, Judge Kemp used to be a lawyer. Lawyers and judges, very calculating the things they do. My dad was both. That's right. Not calculating, but well, I mean, thoughtful. he was he was calculating in his uh his legal practice. His legal practice. You always think <laughs> you always got to think a few steps ahead, like yeah. a carpenter who makes stairs. Oh, yes, that's very true. In a final emotional plea to the jury, lead prosecutor Jason Hermes approached Geiger where she was sitting, pointed at her, and while looking her dead in the eye, said, "You will be held responsible for what you did, and whether or not you want to accept responsibility, it will be forced upon you. And by God, in Dallas County, Texas, there will be a consequence for you walking in and shooting an unarmed and defenseless man." If you look at photos of Hermes's closing statement, I mean, he's on the verge. I mean, he's got his Botham's photo. He's just he's there. This is a passion. Pro- I mean, it's this is a person who's completely passionate about their job. He's uh, Matthew McConaughey in A Time to Kill. I mean, for sure. He's he's everything you would want if somebody was representing you as a victim on behalf of someone in your family or you. Yeah, th- that's who you want is someone who it's deep in their bones. It's in his bones. Yeah. Yeah. After a seven day trial, the jury convened with the option to deliver one of three possible verdicts. Murder manslaughter, or not guilty. After deliberating for less than 24 hours, the jury, which consisted of eight women and four men with a racial makeup of five black, five Hispanic or Asian, and two white, returned with a verdict, guilty of murder. Ultimately, the jury came to the decision based on the belief that Geiger's mistake was not reasonable given the circumstances, testimony, and evidence, and because she outright testified that she shot with the intent to kill. There you go. Throughout the country, the verdict began to make headlines. While innocent black men being shot and killed by white cops is tragically not new news, a guilty verdict of a police officer in one of these cases absolutely is. While race did not seem to play a major role in the trial itself, outside the courtroom, Botham's senseless murder had once again shown a spotlight on the threat of violence people of color face and the need for police reform. According to CNN, S. Lee Merritt, an attorney for Botham's family, called the verdict a huge victory for black people in America. And while nothing will bring their son and brother back, it was a huge victory for the Jean family as well, as justice was served. During sentencing, a few days later, the prosecution introduced text and social media posts from Geiger in hopes of obtaining a harsher sentence. According to the Jean family attorney, Lee Merritt, while Geiger should have been in a room being interrogated, she was instead deleting incriminating photos and posts from her social media. 
The family was able to obtain screenshots, and some of these upsetting images were shared during the sentencing phase. I wonder if on the in-car video where you see her sitting in the driver's Ooh. seat of the squad car, she's got her phone in her hand and she's fucking with her phone. Yeah, they. I, I, I when don't know. when that's he, speculative on my when part. her uh, when the police association detective pulls her out and has her go stand outside the car and says Uh, she's on her phone with her attorney yeah she's on her she was i don't know but lee merritt did say the night once they got her name they immediately went and that's where you saw the photo of her brother is putting the conspiracy i don't know if it was true or not throwing up a sign that's a uh white power sign allegedly yeah or a uh far right wing whatever you call it pepe the frog type person sign with your i don't know what that is but anyway, a white nationalist yeah. hand symbol. Her mom has an All Lives Matter shirt on. And then they saw, they screenshotted the following. Stuff. I have a question, though. Go on. Why wasn't this? Well, I guess it's not introduced during the actual trial itself because um, for what reason? How is this relevant? So, that would be my question. Objection to relevance. But then why is it allowed to be introduced in sentencing? I think that the the, uh, rules of evidence are looser in the sentencing because this is more to show her character and it's not to determine whether or not she is guilty or innocent. But should your character play into your sentence? I guess so. But your character wasn't on trial. Correct. Because the question at trial is the question at trial is, did this person do this act? And did this person have this mental state when doing right. this act? So these messages are not relevant. If she was being charged with a federal hate crime, I would say this is incredibly relevant. But is your should your sentencing be determined on more than just what you just said the trial is about? Yes. That's why they, they're allowed character witnesses on both sides. They're allowed to bring things like this in. Her mom brings in some evidence. Some ex- so the idea is that you give a holistic view of this person are they repentant? Is this a series that they've, you know, is this a pattern of behavior? But things that wouldn't be relevant in determining the central question on the jury charge is, did she shoot this person? Did she shoot with the intent to kill? Were her actions reasonable? And therefore, is she not culpable under this mistake of fact statute? And those, and, it, and if and none of these things go to that. None of these, the question of her being racist doesn't ask, did she shoot this person? Did she mean to shoot him? Well, Again, it could. It, I mean, I mean, if she, if if he had been white, you never know. I mean, she allegedly her testimony is that she didn't see what he looked like. That's her testimony. So that's what she said in sworn oath. Do I think it's true? No, I don't. So think it's true. had she said, had her story been, I saw, a black I did man. see what he could. Then this have been introduced potentially because okay. it would go to relevance because it would be re- partially relevant. If, if she, if, if the, they had introduced race as part of the reason she shot him into this, yes. then this could have been relevant. But she was yanked out of a squad car and told to shut up. So she never mentioned I shot right. a black man in my apartment. Right. She just said I shot somebody. I don't know where I was. So. Not that this was a cover up from the beginning, but I think she was at least mentally and then kind of uh, what is it like we said, she went into like cleanup mode, ass covering mode immediately. Yeah. And I think that included I had no idea what he looked like. Yeah. And I think pushing that narrative, I couldn't see his face. I couldn't see if it was a little old lady or a big tall. I didn't know what it was. Then the A, that could go to recklessness potentially for manslaughter and B, that could go that she's saying without having to say. I have no idea if he was black or not. 
Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I believe that is what it is. So none of these texts and none of these memes would be relevant at trial because the question wasn't, did she commit a hate crime because right, she hates okay. black people because she did this? It just, the question at trial is, did she shoot him? Yeah. Did she mean to? And was she reasonable in her mistake? And we have that answer. So in this case, they're like, how much of a sentence should she get? 99 years? Is this a terrible person? And then you have mitigating witnesses that say, you know, I had this tough life. And then you have, well, maybe did you where you had some feelings that you texted your partner, you texted right. your coworkers, which we'll see. One text was sent in a group chat between officers while working the Martin Luther King Jr. Day parade in January of 2015. One person asked, when does this end? LOL. To which Geiger replied, when MLK is dead, dot, dot, dot. Oh, wait, dot, dot, dot. Not a good look. Not a good look. Nope. I uh I make jokes about a lot of stuff, but I don't why would you ever joke about Martin Luther King on the day? I mean of all day any day. <laughs> of any day, but any yeah. day. He what? Especially as you said in the first episode, there are some people that are held to higher standards. Correct. A police officer whose job that they've taken an oath is to protect and serve, regardless of race or sexuality or gender or whatever, everyone's equal in the eyes of the law. (laughs) That's the oath. That's the, uh, that's what we aspire to. Yeah. I'm saying. I didn't mean to laugh. I imply by my laugh that our justice system is weaponized against marginalized groups. I didn't mean to laugh, but I did because it is. Yeah. So of all the people to be saying this, a police officer who is working the 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 MLK parade, uh, I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of black people around. And that's her mindset right now. Correct. In an exchange between Geiger and her partner, Martin Rivera, the two expressed his satisfaction at working with black officers. Rivera states, damn, I was at this area with five different black officers, exclamation, 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 not racist, but damn. To which Geiger replies, not racist, but just have a different way of working. And it shows if you have to say not racist, racist, you're you're racist. racist. That's uh, it's just cringeworthy. And yeah, so it's it's also ballsy as fuck. Like if I was a cop, I would think at any any time my phone could be confiscated well, and all this shit is just out in the open and they clearly texted each other about work related stuff so it's no wonder that i mean at any point and they're, they're sending each other like nudes and stuff <sighs> on the same phone they're sending work stuff can i just say this is she is not a person that should have been a cop for a lot of reasons and he, uh, he, it doesn't sound like he is either i think he's under investigation rightfully so uh but i think this is uh multi levels of shittiness because not only are you Think about, I mean, just in general, how difficult it is to be a person of color. And then you think, oh, I'm a cop. I'm on a team. These are my teammates. Yeah. And these shitbags are sitting here texting that you're worse at your job. Yeah. Not for nothing that you did, but for how you look. Mm-hmm. Fuck her and fuck him. Yeah. Both. In 2018, Geiger was offered a German shepherd from someone via text. The person warned. Although uh, she may be racist. To which Geiger replied. I wish I could have one, but not in this apartment. Smaller than my old one. Adding seconds later, <laughs> it's okay. I'm the same. <sighs> Sorry, I'm going to give you a dog, but the dog is racist. And she's like, that's cool. That means we'll have at least one thing in common. I mean, ah, uh, horrifying. I, if, 
I don't have anything to say. Because again, it's one of those things where it's it's this insidious form of a person that's like, I'm not racist. I was in the mariachi band. I went to a high school with other multi races. But yet you're sitting there texting shit like this is like a fun joke. Yeah, when you're, you're making dead, LOL, you're LOL. making laugh laughs with your racist buddies because yes. misery loves company. Yeah, and racism sure as shit loves company too. But you think about it. You think about people that go, "I'm not racist. I'm not racist." Be like, if your text messages, as these were, were projected on a wall on a giant ass projection screen, would you be like, "Yeah, man, take a look. Look what I did." Look what, look what I texted and you would not be at all ashamed or would you I'd be horrified about the things you texted if if oh if you're her if I'm her I'm and I saying, am racist texters shown on the screen in the courtroom yes I'd be mortified yes exactly yeah so it's like think about so Sh- I'd be mortified at some of the stuff I text just because it's fucking stupid <laughs> I know most of my stuff is dumb <laughs> I text dumb stuff yeah lame memes but yeah, that, I mean, that's the idea, though, is that someone walks around and goes, I'm not racist. I went to uh, I was from a diverse high school. Really? You're not. Look at what you texted. Yeah. And again, I was going to say, too, you can't. That The problem here is you can't ascertain what's in somebody's heart. Right. You can't know by some sort of a machine. We can't scan some. Only you like we've said before, until you're laying at bed at night. And it's just you answering to yourself. You don't really know what the truth is. Well, and it, but for her, what I was going to say is you can't like scan someone's brain and know if she's racist or not. All we have to go on as external people is her actions yeah. and the things she said and the things she said in writing. And so you may say, I'm not racist. Isn't well, it? then don't tweet and text racist stuff, because if even if you're not racist in your heart of hearts, you're like, I was just trying to be funny. Yes. And, uh, it doesn't matter in a fucking court of law when this is up on a projection well, screen. And it, and it doesn't, and it does matter when you're perpetuating these, these insidious systemic forms of racism where someone tells a racist joke and you don't go, don't, don't say that. Yeah. You know, if someone said something homophobic to me the other day, I said, don't say that. It makes me love you less. I know you're a better person than that. And they said, you know, it hurt my feelings when you said that, but then I really thought about it. I'm like, yeah, you can't. Uh, here, here's if you're the not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. You want to know a secret about me, about Heather? I love to be liked. I feel like Pam on The Office, where she's like, I think Al Qaeda. It makes me upset to think that Al Qaeda doesn't like me. <laughs> I think they would like me if they got to know me. It horrifies me not to be liked. So it is a ner- it, it's nerve wracking when you're joking around with somebody and they something say something shitty. It's it, but it, guess what? Suck it up, McKinney. It's fucking say something, and you have to. You have to go like, what did you mean by that? Why would you? My favorite thing is to just ask, kind of like a, in, a, in an obtuse way of like, well, why would you say I recognize that lady from the nail salon? Is it why would you say that? Well, you you know why this happened to me? And the guy goes, you you know why? I said why? I don't I don't understand what you're saying. He's like, I mean, cause she cause she's Asian. I was like, that was shitty. <laughs> But it's when you make some when someone makes a fluffy little joke that's like based on some stereotype or racist. If you go say out loud, tell me, explain to me why you're saying that. And then they go, well, now I feel shitty. It's like you fucking should feel yeah. shitty. Or usually they say, you know what I mean? You go, no, no, no I don't. Yeah. Explain. Could you explain, explain to me what you mean? Yeah. Explain that to me. So this is, you know, she's she's like, I'm not a racist person. This is not about hate. Well, all we can see. All we can judge you on are your, is your actions and behaviors. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what. And when it's projected on a wall, it's. Well, speaking of actions and behaviors, in the days after Geiger killed Botham, she continued sending sexual messages to her partner, Officer Martin Rivera. That 
makes me want to puke. It's um, it's rough. If you, you're not really in mourning. No, I getting boned is gonna be the last thing I'm thinking about when I just shot a man dead in his apartment. I can't imagine that is where my head would be at at all. And the days following would indicate it to me it was before she was fired and before she was charged with anything, much less murder. So she's thinking, yeah, it'll be fine. I'm okay. I'll be like all I'm the other okay. officers that shoot black people. Yeah. It'll be fine. And that's, and I think her argument was, I was devastated from the beginning. And it's like, you were, well, yeah. it seemed like you were covering your ass from the beginning. Yeah. Images from Geiger's Pinterest were also introduced. One was a minion meme that read, People are so ungrateful. No one ever thanks me for having the patience not to kill them. First of all, anyone that has a minion meme should be thrown in jail. So <laughs> You're fired for sharing a minion meme. <laughs> in another, a photo of a Navy SEAL holding up a weapon reads, Stay low, go fast, kill first, die last. One shot, one kill, no luck, all skill. Another read, I wear all black to remind you not to mess with me because I'm already dressed for your funeral. So these are things that... I don't know. I mean, first of all, who puts this shit on Pinterest? I thought Pinterest was for recipes and party plans. It's where you fucking like have pages on how you're going to redecorate your house. This makes no sense that this, I mean, that's irrelevant, but it just proves more that she's kind of an idiot. But these are things that could be construed as nothing, but then when lumped into all this other stuff... A spotlight is going to be shown on it. Well, and it does make, like I said from the beginning, it makes it seem like a person who wanted to whip their gun out and be, a, you know, I, I want to be a gunslinger. Yes, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in and, you know, this is my house. I'm gonna protect it or whatever or whatever she thought. When really your training says I have steps I should go through. Had it she ever can. fired her gun before? She shot a person before, but they uh, lived. And was that on the up and up? Like in on it was in do uh what's the word I'm looking for? She wasn't investigated. It wasn't no. It, was it wasn't like questionable in the, in the course of duty. Okay, yeah, no, I meant, but like it was even then it was yeah. I mean, she justifiable. Yeah, okay. And how long had she been a cop? Uh, she started. It's oh, a great question. Four years, I think. That's a that's we said it in the last episode. I'm a, my brain's about full of her. So yeah, I yeah. I can't remember. Well, I'm just saying, it wasn't. It wasn't like this Fort Worth guy that's been on a cop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Geiger's personnel file was also introduced during sentencing. Geiger had previously been denied work at the Fort Worth Police Department before starting with DPD. She also admitted to prior use of marijuana. In August of 2018, a handcuffed suspect got away from Geiger, and she did not immediately report to her sergeant what happened. So this tells me a couple of things. First of all, this prior use of marijuana, I'm fine with everyone doing marijuana. That's all fine and good. But fuck a bunch of everybody who's like, he had marijuana in his apartment. Right. Well, guess what? Your beloved cop also smokes weed. Probably everybody does. Get over it. It ain't a big deal. So to me... This is important to come out because she also texted like a bunch of hippies are around smoking right. weed. Well, you're a cop now, so you probably can't smoke weed now. You probably would if you could. I mean, who's to say? Maybe not. Maybe she gave it up. I don't know. But the implication to me there is this is 
you, this is a, a a way the reporting on the marijuana in his apartment was kind of a way to besmirch his good yes. name. Yeah, uh, when really he used it almost medicinally, not yes. not prescribed, but almost for his for his ADD. And then secondly, the handcuffed suspect got away from Geiger, uh, which sounds like a Paul Blart kind of situation, <laughs> yeah. but. She did not immediately report to her sergeant what happened. I think is key in it. To me, it indicates a person who's trying to cover their shit. Yes. That does not own play up. by the rules that Doesn't own a up. cop should. You got to own up. And eventually she told him, but they asked the sergeant. Did eventually she t- after. Yeah. When she realized she had to well, perhaps. Man, he or, went off. Yeah. yeah. Eventually they're going to ask why your squad car is empty. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of goes to her. Why had she been denied work at the Fort Worth Police Department? It didn't really get into it. It sh- um, I don't know if it was because she admitted to prior use and Fort Worth is more strict than Dallas. I'm not sure. Interesting. Or if it was a personality test or a psych test or something. I don't know. Geiger's mother and sister testified in sentencing, speaking to Geiger's personality change since the shooting. Her mother also testified that Geiger was sexually abused by the mother's boyfriend when Geiger was just six years old. Botham's family also testified to the wonderful light that he was. They tried to get into on the uh, sexual abuse testimony that that's why she became a cop, because the cops were the only way she felt safe. But there was objections to that as uh, including that in because you can't know how a six year old, you know, the mom was testifying to the truth of something the six year old said way back when. And like you said, in the sentencing phase how hard of a life did these people have yeah. gets brought up to try and uh, affect it. The prosecution had asked the jury to sentence Geiger to 28 years, as Botham would have soon turned 28 years old. However, the jury ultimately decided that Amber Geiger would be sentenced to 10 years behind bars for the murder of Botham Jean. She will be eligible for parole after serving at least five of those years. In an interview with the jurors, one of the jurors said, two of them were the only two to speak out, and one of them said, I can't say what Botham would have wanted, but we think that he was a really forgiving person. And while we think she needs to be punished for what he did, we think that based on what his parent, his family said, his parents said, we think that he wouldn't want to just totally take this person. Yes, life that away. he would want someone to have a second chance at life and to mm-hmm. be able to get out in time because she's 31 right now, yeah. 32, 31. So by the time she still has her whole life ahead She'll of be her, out by the time she's 40. it's a much different life. But. Yeah, they thought this is what he probably would have wanted based on his character. So, and that's you know, again, I'm not, I'm not judging people for having opinions. This is a visceral case, but the jurors sat through seven days of the trial, and then they sat through sentencing, and they got to hear firsthand for hours what type of person this was, and that's what they based their thing on. So it's easy to read one article and be like, I would have given her 99 years. I would have given her the death penalty. Well, first of all, it's not on the table. You know what I mean? I would have given her 99 years. But also the question, and a lot of legal experts conjecture, but we don't fully know because we've only heard from two of the jurors the conjecture was there was maybe a deal made where the juror said there may have been somebody going i don't know i don't Mm. murder i don't know and them saying if you agree to murder we won't put her away for that long yeah and and come into a consensus that way to get the murder conviction but then also they would have to give on sentencing and not put as hard that was conjecture by legal experts we haven't heard anything from the jurors the jurors that were interviewed said we felt that he would have wanted it this way and who's to say they're wrong i mean right no yeah his family may say he wanted it the op- you know, they his- were selected and that's how our legal system works 
In an emotional display that had the entire courtroom in tears, Brant Jean, Beau's younger brother, told Geiger that he forgave her, saying, If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he'll forgive you. Brant went on to say, I personally want the best for you. I wasn't even going to say this before my family, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do, to give your life to Christ. He then asked Judge Kemp if he could walk over and give Amber a hug. The two then embraced and wept for several seconds. And this is the viral video that was seen, that was shared. All over. Allison Jean, Beau's mother, in an interview with CBS News' Omar Villafranca, wanted to remind everyone that... What Brant did today was remarkable, and he did it all on his own. What Brant did was to cleanse his heart toward Amber. I do not want it to be misconstrued as complete forgiveness of everybody. I think that's important. It's very it's important. It's, it's good for her for saying what my how my son heals is his business. Mm-hmm. I will not judge him for that. That does not mean that he speaks for the family. Yes. And he even said, I'm not speaking for my family. That everyone everyone has their own way of healing and grieving yeah. and grieving and it's no one's business but their own how they go about that. So if to forgive her was a way for him to move on and heal, good for him. If this, if Allison wants to hold on to the hate she feels for the woman that took her son from if her for the rest of her life, if she does hate him, I'm not I'm implying that she does hate I'm her. Say, yeah. yeah, in a, a hypothetical situation, she's completely allowed to do that too. Exactly. No one has to forgive anyone in these situations. No, 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 no. And that's I think it's important because everyone was moved by Brant's actions as you should be everyone in the courtroom i mean the the attorneys were crying everyone's the judge was crying everyone's everyone's crying the jury is out at this point correct yeah but everyone else is crying saying they've never seen anything like this correct and i think it's fine if he wants to do that and i think it's uh for the nation important to see that you know what the if at our core maybe we can find something in somebody that even if they took the most precious thing you know they took a family member from you maybe you can find it a in your heart to forgive them or and b you think they're salvageable right like Mm -hmm. this there's more to you than this action that you did even though your action doesn't define you your action was so devastating to me there's still more to you or whatever but the flip side of it is weaponizing the forgiveness of a victim particularly a victim of color and saying well look their racism is over mm-hmm. look at this look at them hugging i don't have to as a white person i don't have to feel bad anymore look they forgave her we're good and it's like you i think you we always talk about you hold two truths right you can say this is a beautiful display of a forgiving young man but you can also say our implicit biases and the justice system and the systemic racism and all there's so many things we got to turn around right yeah. this is a uh, a big issue that's not it wasn't built in a day and it's not going to be fixed in a day right so it's something we need to work towards but you know i think it, there doesn't have to be polarized you don't have to say oh i just, that video i don't even want to watch it. you watch it and say how beautiful and how nice for him and that's the way he's going to heal but for me as a person i'm going to vote in my local elections educate myself on how this is become a problem in the first place you know and i think it's important not to go well i feel he feels better i feel better it's great because he still has other family members and then also just humanity as a whole is hurting from this and as we've seen in texas this week Mm -hmm. it ain't over right this is some shit that still happens and luckily we see the fort worth police swoop in and say no we're charging them we're firing you if you don't quit first 
And the mayor saying, we don't take this lightly. It's a full investigation. We're this, not- uh, her case probably influenced how swiftly they acted. Correct. Well, after the sentencing was officially over, Judge Tammy Kemp came down off the bench to hug Botham's family and express condolences for their unspeakable loss. In a gesture that has sparked some controversy, she then went to where Geiger was still seated, spoke to her for several minutes, hugged her, and gave her a Bible. Again, this is another situation where people were freaking out on both sides. This is so great. This is such a nice judge. And a Christian person, she and Tammy Kemp is not religious for the first time. She talked no, about she's very openly religious, very open. She's talked about before she ran for judge five or so years ago. You know, I prayed my husband and I prayed and fasted. I mean, she is devout. Right. Yes. And that's fine. The question there's a couple of questions, right? Like, should a judge do that in their robes? Should is it a, a question of separation of church and state? Should a judge do that in their uh, official capacity as a judge? Right. You're out in your robe. You're not like, hey, come back in my chambers and we'll talk. I'll come visit you at prison later. I also believe it was her personal Bible. Correct. She said this is a small mustard seed of faith. This is all you need for the next month. Focus on yourself and focus on this forgiveness or whatever. And she said in an interview afterwards, God told me to do that. Christ or God or who, a voice came to me and said, right. get up and go give her your Bible. And there's now been an official complaint lodged against her by a third party outside of the state. I think they're based out of Wisconsin. It's like a separation of church and state, like a nonprofit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the issue is, did she do anything wrong? The jury had been dismissed by this point. The trial was officially over. Trial was over. Sentencing was but over. But the cameras were still rolling. And so that's the other thing is, did you do something that looks... Uh, imp- inappropriate as a judge. The other question is if she would have been like, hello, I'm giving you this Quran and I think that you mm-hmm. need to read this. So it's all well and good when people are like, you know, she that's her faith. That's fine. If you were, oh, you'd that's be okay her, with it. If she said, <laughs> if hello, it's her Christian faith, I'd like to give you the writings of Aleister Crowley. <laughs> This is a church of Satan, yeah. and you'll feel better about it. Yeah. And so I, there, I don't see that she did anything legally wrong. There is an ethics complaint against her. Will anything come of it? We'll see. I don't think she's ashamed of what she did whatsoever. I mean, you see interviews with her afterwards. No, I and think she's, she's like, come out and said I did the what opposite. I did. Yeah. I did what I did, and I'm happy I did it. So the other issue that you get into, and I saw it on the Texas criminal defense lawyer page that I was reading, was that cesspool. I mean, all of them are. Just, <laughs> but um, that said, how many other defendants did she do that for? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. If it was if she looked different, if she was a different socioeconomic status, if she wasn't a cop, if she, you know, there's a lot of what ifs. This whole case is full of what ifs. Right. If the cameras hadn't been rolling, perhaps nobody would have known about it. Well, what if she would have taken her robe off? Would it looked better? Is that then Tammy, the lady and not Judge Kemp, the, par- the person that has. to? And again, here's the thing that sucks. She's a great judge, by the way. This is uh, we're about to get into why she's an even more badass judge than we've seen. She was incredibly fair and impartial. She's yes. incredibly attentive. She takes handwritten notes. I mean, she fully pays attention. She's a she's well, very compassionate. She's very well respected. Correct. She's a beloved judge. But the issue is you're a judge. You're supposed to be fair and impartial and you represent the state. Right. Mm hmm. Take off. I would say I would say take off the robe at the very least. Take off the robe at the very least. Do it behind. I'd say also while you're walking her down the hall. Call her to your your chambers yes. and do it back there. Correct. So that's uh, that. emotions were high for everybody. And I think she was moved by what Brant did, you know, and was moved on her own faith. And she t- dabbed her eyes throughout the trial. You know, yeah, I mean, she was a human being and, and 
you you want your judges to be human, right? Because you don't want robots up there. Don't that's the future, by the way. Mm. Robot judge. If you're detective, uh, mommy. First pants, of all, that also sounds like a kind of fun uh, kids cartoon. Judge robot. <laughs> yeah, robot judge. Copyright. <laughs> uh, judge robot. The robot judge. Um, but you know, you want somebody with a, with a heart and that, but that doles out the the, the law impartially, right? Yeah. And not so. I don't think she did anything illegal. The question is. Do you have a responsibility as a judge to uphold the visage of your office and just appear as impartial and not appear as Christian? But I, I don't know. I so, think that if she ain't gonna that lose her rego- bench, she's not going to no, lose her but bench. I think in that regard, she did cross the line. Uh huh. I don't think she did anything illegal, but I do think that she did not act as impartial or as appear as impartial as she should have dressed in robes in her courtroom regardless if the trial was over or not and i think yeah the one thing that could have helped was take the robe off and there are judges that in dallas county we're lucky to have phenomenal judges who care deeply about defendants and have especially there's a specific program that started in dallas county that is focused on sex workers and reforming people with drug addictions and making it less of a punitive sort of a a sentencing and more of almost counseling and the judge does hug those defendants right and does get close with them and writes to them and things like that but the kind of the issue here is you're still in your robes when mm-hmm. you do it. That's not part of a separate program outside the courtroom. That's, well, and it's also you're bringing a religion into it. You're passing out Bibles. Yeah. And those those other programs, they don't pass out Bibles. Right. Yeah. So that's I, th- I mean, I don't think she'll lose her bench over it. But. No, gosh. I mean, I hope she doesn't. I no, don't same. Think I think we need people like that. her on yeah. the set. I mean, we need a fair. That impartial... one incident does not no. negate how phenomenal she was in this entire trial. Correct. Well, appeals are common in cases like this, where there is a breadth of evidence and different expert opinions. The most likely route for appeal will be on the grounds that certain evidence that would have helped Geiger was excluded. Two officers were willing to testify that Geiger acted reasonably under the circumstances. The judge did not allow these officers to testify. In order to bring this error up at appeal, the lawyers must have objected to it during the trial. Geiger's lawyers did not object to the exclusion of these witnesses. Wonder why that is. Uh, they're calculating. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe they're saving them for later. <laughs> Geiger's team could appeal based on the denial of their motion to change venue. Before the trial began, the defense team moved to change the venue from Dallas County to Kaufman, Grayson, Ellis, Rockwell, or Fannin counties, all rural counties outside of Dallas. According to NBC5, Geiger's defense attorney told the court that the jury pool had been poisoned and that the media was pushing a false narrative that the shooting was racially motivated. However, Duke economics professor Patrick Bayer told the Dallas Morning News that if you move a trial from a more racially and ethnically diverse community, you're going to increase the chance for acquittal, which is why they're making the motion in the first place. All five of the proposed counties have a white population over 80 percent and a black population under 10 percent. As of 2015, Dallas County's racial makeup is 28 percent white, 22 percent black and 41 percent Latino. So the question would be, did the motion to change venue, the denial of the motion to change venue, not give her a fair trial? But I think that they kind of lose because the argument was that this false narrative had been pushed by the media. But if tornado warnings are any indication, Kaufman, Grayson, Ellis, Rockwall and Fannin County are all within the viewing area of all <laughs> yeah. of our TV channels. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. We so, talked about on the last episode. If you're in Texas 
you heard you saw that i mean people all over the state and even we've had listeners in australia Australia say it made news over there so Mm -hmm. It it had it wasn't going to change. Mm-mm. What was going to change is the racial makeup, Correct. for sure. Correct. Another basis for appeal would be an improper jury charge. For instance, if Judge Kemp had not allowed the lesser offenses to be included on the jury charge, that could have been grounds for an appeal. Likewise, Judge Kemp also allowed the Texas Castle Doctrine defense and the affirmative defense of mistake of fact to be added to the jury charge. Many experts saw this as an effort to make Geiger's conviction appeal-proof, meaning that since these instructions were included, the Geiger appellate team will need to explore other avenues of appeal. Yeah, Judge Kemp is a phenomenal judge and a former attorney, and she knows that if you leave those off, it's almost like an automatic appeal. Mm -hmm. So again, this is the thing that, this is why I don't respond to Facebook threads. People were like, Castle Doctrine, why'd she do that? Now she's going to get off on Castle Doctrine. No, she's doing that so she can't appeal later because she knows she has no case with it in the first place. Ding, ding, ding. And the same with the mistake of fact. If you would have left that off or you would have left manslaughter or criminal negligent homicide off of the jury charge, all of those things, that's all grounds for appeal. Yeah. So she, so again, it's people, whip, they have these whiplash opinions like, that's bullshit. I can't believe she's, well, I can't believe she's an impar. She's a, uh, an unfair judge. It's like, how many years have you practiced law? Right. Oh, was it zero? And was hers 21 before she's been a judge for another five years? Maybe defer to an expert every yeah. once in a while. If you want an expert on being an asshole, we'll call you. <laughs> God, that was so good. I want a bell I can ring when you say great things. I'll oh, we could get a bell. Like a like a bellhop bell. Like when you're needing service somewhere? Yeah, like ding, in ding, the ding, olden ding. days. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all can't see, but Heather just keeps swatting the air in front of me. <laughs> well, convictions can also be appealed on constitutional grounds. For instance, if a piece of evidence is withheld or someone was searched improperly. We are all constitutionally entitled to effective assistance of counsel. So one basis for appeal could be that Geiger's attorneys were ineffective. This is a high standard, and she would have to prove that her lawyer's performance was deficient and that it fell below the objective standard of professional norms and that this deficiency prejudiced her defense. Basically, she would have to show that but for her counselor's unprofessional errors, she would not have been convicted. Based on the footage from trial, she is unlikely to pursue this type of appeal. It's a real high standard. There's cases where lawyers were drunk and asleep. Wow, and they—that's a legal team. Why do you think I became a lawyer? I can drink and sleep <laughs> so on the drink, job. Sleep it's on great. the job. Yeah, so it's a super high. And they, the her defense attorneys really tried a lot of stuff. So I can't imagine that. In those were... cases, who files that appeal? Your new attorney? Yeah, you get an appellate attorney. Okay. Like in this case, because I, I was gonna say you don't file that against yourself. <laughs> no. Like, I was a real dipshit on this case. And you, in fact, can't because you can't, like, throw the game. You know, you can't throw the trial and say, she got such a bad lawyer. I'm such an idiot. So, and most of the time anyway, trial lawyers are different from appellate lawyers. It's kind of a different ballgame. It's different. Uh, You know, it's less on the rules of evidence, more on the rules of appeal. You got to write a brief. It's a whole deal. It's It's like apples and oranges. It's more on paper and less in performance. You're all fruits, but you're different kinds of fruits. Exactly. You're all lawyers, but you're doing different things. Some disturbing allegations came out during the trial, including that some officers may have tampered with evidence in order to protect Geiger. Dallas Police Chief Renee Hall does not take such allegations lightly and has announced that she is launching an internal investigation to examine those actions. So this is what will come out of the argument, whether the police association president pulling her out of the squad car, whether them leaving her standing by herself while they went and got a squad car, leaving her in the front seat with her hands unhandcuffed, but mostly turning off 
the in-camera stuff and in and taking her away which police association president mata said she was on the phone with her lawyer so it'll come out that she was or she wasn't but that's his current defense we got that and then we also have uh martin rivera the martin rivera and on halloween uh yes. the gag order yes we're, we'll have a, a show cause hearing for da cruzo to go before judge yes Kemp and say whether or not he actually gave that interview if it was old footage or kind of clear that up so that so lots of updates that be. we will do when they come well 10 days after joshua brown botham's neighbor testified at the high profile trial he was shot and killed outside his apartment complex on cedar springs road in dallas and what police are saying was a drug deal gone wrong However, the timing of the case and the fact that Brown's testimony had been key in Geiger's conviction led many to speculate if his murder was directly related to his testimony. Police were called to the scene around 10.35 p.m. after witnesses reported hearing gunshots and seeing a silver four-door sedan speed off. When police arrived, they discovered Brown laying in the parking lot, having been shot multiple times. Paramedics transported him to Parkland Hospital, where he later died. Witnesses were unable to provide a description of the suspects. However, one of the men, 20-year-old Jaquarius Mitchell, had also been shot by Brown. And when police interviewed him in the hospital, a picture of the crime began to emerge. According to Mitchell, he and two other young men, 22-year-old Thaddeus Green and 32-year-old Michael Mitchell, drove from Alexandria, Louisiana to buy some marijuana. Per the arrest warrant, Brown and Green got into an argument which quickly escalated into violence. When Mitchell got out of the car to help, he was shot. Green then retaliated by shooting Brown before taking the bag and gun Brown was carrying and making their getaway. Around the same time Brown was being admitted to the hospital, Jaquarius was as well, having been driven there by Michael. When police questioned Michael at the hospital, he said they had been trying to buy weed from someone on Harry Hines Boulevard when they were robbed and Jaquarius was shot. However, as stated in the arrest warrant, during the course of the investigation, Dallas Detective J.H. White received a phone call from a detective with the Rapides Parish Sheriff's Department in Louisiana, saying that several witnesses that wished to remain anonymous had come forward, saying that the three men had been responsible for the death of Joshua Brown and had traveled to Dallas with the intention of robbing him. So this was a story that sort of came out pretty quickly after the initial incident, the police immediately tweeted that Joshua Brown had a bunch, not a bunch, like 14 pounds of weed in his apartment and some cash, which seemed like they were trying to distance himself and be like, see, look, he was a drug dealer. Yeah. Surely we did not do it, uh, which maybe was a little hasty on their part and a little distasteful. Looking. Yeah. And uh, tweeting that out, a reporter from Alexandria did mention that it's for about four and a half hours away from Dallas and that because Dallas is on a central highway system that lower level drug dealers from Alexandria are known to come to stock up, I guess, in Dallas. Yeah, that would have been my first thought was that they were not just buying a weed for personal use. I'm sure that's available in their hometown. Yes. But that they were buying a substantial amount for sure. Well, in an interview with CNN, Lee Merritt, the attorney representing Brown's family, who also represents the Jeans, said that Brown had been subpoenaed to testify in Geiger's trial, but made it clear that he had no interest in testifying in open court in that trial. He went on to say, I think he had some apprehension about being seen as an informant or a snitch. 
In the same interview, Merritt said Brown feared for his safety because he had personal beef with people that were unaware that he still lived in the Dallas area. A year earlier, on November 23, 2018, Brown was involved in another shooting at a Dallas strip club. While Brown was wounded, another man was killed. Brown believed that fatal shot had been meant for him and expressed concerns for his safety to both the prosecution and Judge Tammy Kemp. In the days following Brown's murder, amidst allegations circulating online and in the media, Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson took to Twitter saying, Until we know more about this incident, I encourage everyone to refrain from speculation. Dallas will never be a city that tolerates acts of violence such as this. Johnson went on to say that anyone with information on the shooting should immediately contact the police. However, there are those that believe the police and the justice system are the very ones to blame for not protecting Brown when he told them multiple times leading up to testifying that he was afraid for his life. He even went as far as to flee to California to avoid having to testify, but a warrant was issued stating he would be arrested if he didn't appear in court. From the start, he said, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to testify. He knew that someone was threatening his life. And I mean, it's a hard line to tell as the prosecutor to say this man's testimony is super important because he lived in the closest proximity to the victim and he can rebut her Amber Geiger's uh, allegation that she yelled, let me see your hand. Yes, because he could hear him singing Drake and gospel songs when he was coming and going from his apartment. And so it was important to have his testimony and they subpoenaed him. And the when you get subpoenaed, you, in theory, must appear, but you can also have an attorney file a motion to quash, to quash the subpoena and say, if you, you can't force my client to testify because if they do, their life would be put in danger. And they didn't do that? He did not file a motion to quash. And despite them actually having an undercover police officer testify outside the vision, the, um, yeah, they turned off the cameras for that and they kept their name out of the media. Correct. They did not do the same for Joshua Brown. Yeah. And. I have not read anything as to why that was. Uh, It's very unfortunate that they didn't take his claim seriously. And even like minutes before he was to testify, he was in Kemp's chamber saying, I am terrified for my life. I really think that someone is going to try and kill me if I do this. And he still they still didn't turn the cameras off or keep his name out of it. "Eh, Well, you'll be fine. In the days following his murder, police also obtained a search warrant for Brown's apartment. They then publicly announced they found 12 pounds of marijuana, 143 grams of THC cartridges, and $4,000 in cash. Assistant Chief Avery Moore also issued a statement saying, As you know, there's been speculation and rumors that have been shared by community leaders claiming that Mr. Brown's death was related to the Amber Geiger trial and somehow the Dallas Police Department was responsible. I assure you that is simply not true, and I encourage those leaders to be mindful of their actions moving forward because their words have jeopardized the integrity of the city of Dallas as well as the Dallas Police Department. Hmm. Well, I got Uh, some opinions. Go on. (laughs) Well, I mean, nothing that we didn't already say. I think, uh, you know, as soon as this happened... People were taken to social media saying the police killed him. Like, literally, they thought that this was police retaliation because he had convicted one of their own and everything. I do not think police killed him in the sense that they pulled the trigger. I do think that neglect on their part, as well as the justice system and protecting a witness 
led to his murder. Yeah, he clearly had some issue with someone that tried to shoot him a year before, and this just thrust, could have possibly been the the same people. And it thrust him into the spotlight. Yes, and, and he knew that that was going to be a problem. And unfortunately, yeah, I want. I mean, the Brown family has now retained Lee Merritt, who I will. Uh, not a thousand percent certain, but like pretty close. We'll sue the city of Dallas. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think he. Or the Dallas Police Department or somebody. I think that because he was put in the spotlight, whoever was looking for him found him, found him very easily. And the rest was history. Yeah. Currently, Jaquarius Mitchell and Michael Mitchell have been arrested. Thaddeus Green remains at large. All three men face charges of capital murder. Anyone with information about the shooting may contact Detective Jacob White at 214-671-3690 or email jacob.white at dallascityhall.com and refer to the case number 202-433-2019. Crime Stoppers will pay up to $5,000 for information leading to an arrest and indictment in this case. To make an anonymous tip, call 214-373-8477. Well, hopefully they will uh, be brought to justice and and then Joshua Brown's family will get justice from the city of Dallas Yeah, on the civil side. To honor Botham's life, co-workers at PricewaterhouseCooper dedicated a special room to their beloved colleague called the Botham Jean Different Space. It is meant to bring together colleagues in an inviting space to share ideas and make a positive impact. Near the space hangs a newly created piece of art by Texan artists Shane Albritton and Norman Lee. It features the Jean's family's favorite photo of Botham, formed together by 10,000 tiny pieces of painted wood. The artists wanted something different than traditional metal or glass, so they chose wood, which also includes small rings, meant to symbolize all the Jean's memories of Botham. The portrait is rendered in bright colors, meant to invoke feelings of the bright island of St. Lucia. This art is very beautiful. It's very beautiful, yes. We'll post a picture of it for sure. PWC also hosted a Red Tie Day, where they raised over $600,000 for the Botham Jean Foundation, which provides scholarships to students from St. Lucia and students studying accounting. His alma mater, Harding University, has also established a scholarship program in his memory. According to WFAA, Tim Ryan, PWC's U.S. chairman, has also begun an education campaign on unconscious racial bias that he refers to as, quote, blind spots. To celebrate Botham's dedication to Christ, his family created the Botham Jean Foundation, which, according to the website, promotes Christian intervention through social change. For those that wish to donate, please visit BothamJeanFoundation.org. So what do we think? Well, mm, it's a complex case and a simple case. Yeah. It's complex in that the legal standards are super complex. And it's simple in that it's a person who should not have had a gun, who succumbed to her own biases, who flipped out at the wrong moment, and a gentleman who, by all accounts, was fully innocent. Oh, yeah. No and one's arguing that. Yeah. And his life was lost. You know, he did nothing that none of us would have done, that any of us would have done, you know? Yeah. I think um, it's a simple case, too, in that once you are aware of the testimony, mm -hmm. the charge of murder is the only way it could have gone. Yes. But it's emotions run high and logic and 
all that goes out the window for a lot of people in these cases to where they, like you said, it's just that knee-jerk reaction of give her 99 years when... Or she didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, on both sides. And I think we have the privilege of saying, I mean, I do as a lawyer, it sucks my emotion out of stuff a lot of times. I look at stuff in kind of like a clinical way, which I hate because it, it makes me feel less human. Judge Robot. Maybe I'll become Judge <laughs> Robot. But, you know, it makes you feel less human. But it's, I ha- that's a privilege for me to say this. You know, it does affect me. It makes this whole case, this research made me cry. It, it's made you cry. It made you upset. It really, both of us, it affected. But uh, it's something that I think is indicative of the community of the of Dallas, of the United States in particular, with all of our gun violence, overall showing that we we got to make changes. You know, yes. we can't. And I think really, truly someone's death is in vain if you go, well, man, you know, his brother hugged the lady, so everything must be OK. Yeah. Made me feel good at least. So I'm, I'm going to not think about this anymore. You know, they say be like Bo. He was uh, a, a joy to be around. He wanted to make everyone feel welcome. He wanted to promote social justice and change. And so that's we got to be like him. Yeah. Well, thanks for sticking with us over this two-part one. It was a lot of stuff, but we did it. Two parts and uh, two almost two hours each, so it's a long one. Yeah. Well, we have some live shows coming up. We do. First of all, we're going to perform with our improv troupe, The Cult, Friday, October 18th at 10 p.m. at Dallas Comedy House. And then Chrissy... What are we doing Saturday, October 19th at 10 p.m. at Dallas Comedy House? We are going to be having a live podcast recording followed by a meet and greet. And we will put the audio of the live podcast online for you to download. But if you want to see us in person, meet us in person and get access to some new exclusive, really cool merch. Yes. Some of it's limited edition and we'll pretty much only be at the live show mm-hmm. you got to be there there's only a few tickets left you can go to sinisterhood.com click on live shows and you can get tickets and get a grilled cheese sandwich <laughs> yeah. i just think about every day of my life they're very good you had avocado added to it that was on day. you you said to add avocado and, and how how to how to go my goodness it was <laughs> life-changing it was exactly how it should have been awesome. it was great pair that with a manic margarita it's over with. There you go. So good. So make sure to go to sinisterhood.com, click on live shows. You can come make a weekend of it. See us on October 18th at 10 with our improv show, uh, The Cult, and then the live show, October 19th. Yeah. I also have a show with my troop, Cupcake. It's seven o'clock on the 19th. So Super you just want a, a night full of Christie, which is also an adult film, probably somewhere. <laughs> Title of your not not uh, mine, but someone's. You can do that too. A night full of Christie, October 19th. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sinisterhood will always remain free. But if you wish to donate to our Patreon to help offset the cost of making and hosting the show, you can visit sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner. You'll get some sweet perks like Patreon-exclusive content, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group, a special shout-out on the show, and a monthly bonus mini-sode. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. 
So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. We love them. And if you want to get your own Sinisterhood swag, October is the perfect time. You can get t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kids, all for 20% off your entire order when you spend $15 or more. It's now through Halloween. So go to Sinisterhood.com and click shop in the top right corner in order to get 20% off your whole order of all kinds of cool stuff. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SinisterhoodPod and like us on Facebook at SinisterHood. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I am on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I am on Instagram at Heather VS The World and on Twitter at MCK VS The World. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Mm, keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Jody Sloss, which is what I call a group of sloss. That's right. More than one sloth for me as a sloss. That's so Jody great. Sloss. That's awesome. Your favorite word. Uh, Katie McDonald. Susanna Matthews. Danielle Pierce. Anna Jeffrey. Emily Dodson. Anti-nickname. Lisa Pace. Kelly Linsky. Stephanie. Percy Tellier. Kristen Brown. Katie. Heidi S. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. Make sure you head to Patreon. Check out all of the perks that come along with your specific level. And don't forget, keep it creepy. (laughs) Is that a question? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. Keep it creepy. Sinister <laughs> 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 <laughs>